Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do with their time other than meticulously studying the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. I'm Andrew. And the cat's called Suki. And if you've listened to the show before, you'll know that it is a COVID-free zone. That's right. We're bringing you the favourite science we found in the last two weeks that has nothing to do with COVID. And yet again, it's been a great fortnight for science. I mean, when is it ever not? It's also strangely been a good week for anyone interested in local politics, as I've probably spent about as much time discussing whether Jackie Weaver did indeed have the authority as I did discussing science. So this is a break from that too. What else piqued your interest this week, Andrew? Well, in exciting news closer to home, we've got some social media accounts. We have. What have we got? Tell the people. We've got a Twitter account, at Lockdown Science, and an Instagram account which is at lockdown science podcast and actually there's a little bit of a competition going on here let's be honest let's be completely honest yeah you set up the twitter i set up the instagram and we're pretty much neck and neck trying well we're not you're winning yeah i was gonna say how much have you pulled it back because i was (laughs) definitely in the lead last time i checked you're really quite strongly in the lead so if you're listening to this and you're on team ellie please follow us on instagram that's at lockdown science podcast and if you're on team andrew follow us on twitter (laughs) That's at Lockdown Science. Or if you just like the podcast, follow both. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Science of the Week. Well, it's time for that part of the show where we find out just how little Andrew knows about science. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you might have soaked a little bit more in this week. Possibly. I mean, we did get to the point where I was being smug about the fact that I'd got something for isolation recommendations for this week and in two weeks' time. And then you asked if you could steal it. I did not ask if I could steal it. I'd already seen it. And what I said was, can I please keep it? (sighs) All right. Fair enough. So, yes, I think that a few of these things, actually, I've heard other people mention to you and I'm like, don't give it away. Anyway, we're going to see how much you actually absorbed. You're setting me up for a fall now. I know. (laughs) Most of this has been said to you, so it's really a memory test. (laughs) Number one. The 2nd of February was Groundhog Day in the US. What did the groundhog's behaviour predict? How long it was until spring begins. Yes. Can you be any more specific? I remember there was six weeks involved. Mm -hmm. He predicted there will be six more weeks of winter. I'll give you that one. I'll give you that. Now, I'm going to backtrack a little bit just in case some listeners have literally no idea what I'm talking about. Although, most people have probably heard of the film Groundhog Day. I mean, even you've heard of that film. Even I've heard of that. Even you. Yeah. Basically, there's this tradition in the US and Canada, which actually has its origins in the Netherlands and Germany, where on the 2nd of February each year, they summon a groundhog, which is a type of rodent, out of its burrow. And if it sees its shadow, then the superstition is that there will be six more weeks of winter. And if it doesn't see its shadow, then spring will come early. So basically, if it's sunny when the groundhog emerges, it's going to cause a shadow which means that winter will continue for another six weeks, which is kind of counterintuitive, right? Yeah, but I mean, the whole thing is hocus pocus. I will hear none of this. (laughs) It has been shown, shock horror, there is no correlation between the groundhog's (laughs) prediction and Uh, the weather. Kel surprise. I know, right? (laughs) 
The ceremony is particularly popular in this town called Punxsutawney, which is also the place that the film Groundhog Day was set. Hence, oh, yeah. Okay. Now, they've been running the ceremony in Punxsutawney since about 1886, 1887, with a groundhog that they call Punxsutawney Phil. So Phil seems to be treated like a celebrity. From what they say, he's awoken gently from his burrow on the special morning. They watch whether he sees his shadow, and then he's brought to a ceremony where men in suits and fancy hats listen to his prediction and then proclaim it from a scroll. Ah, okay. So you actually showed me a video of this, and I now understand a little bit more what was going on. Yeah. They weren't, at the point when they were all staring at him, they weren't looking then to see whether he saw a shadow. That had already been done. That was just them pretending that they could speak to him. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they bring okay. him out and they're like, so what happened, Phil? And Phil's like, well, I saw my shadow, guys. It ain't looking good. But actually, they're sort of standing around going, you look so beautiful, Phil. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I think Phil's going, well, someone woke me from my sleep this morning and dragged me out into the cold and it's currently snowing and I'd like to be hibernating. So please put me back. No, Phil's treated like an absolute celebrity. I think that Phil's really well treated. But I do have to say, he's a legend. He's not necessarily an accurate legend when it comes to his meteorological forecasts, but he has been a legend since 1886. Do you see a problem with this? It's not the same groundhog. Groundhogs generally only live to 14 years in captivity. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's the original Phil. It's about it the 20th Phil. It's like your goldfish dies and then your parents replace it and they're like, yeah. nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> Same one. If you look back through the archives, you can actually see where the colour of Phil's fur subtly changes. Oh, he gets yeah. a bit smaller, then he gets a bit bigger. One Phil was missing a tooth. And then... <laughs> We've been lied to. Or... Phil is the first centenarian groundhog. There's also that, maybe. But maybe. Who knows? I've got a question. Yes. You're oh, definitely no. not going to know the answer. Okay. <laughs> it has Dutch and German origins. You don't get groundhogs in the Netherlands and Germany. I do know the answer. It was originally a badger. <gasps> ah. Yes. I'm not sure why it switched. I guess because it originally in America originated from the Pennsylvania Dutch population. And I guess that when they came to America, they were like, well, we don't have a badger, so I guess we'll use this fluffy thing. Uh, the groundhog. Okay, okay. I actually knew the answer. <laughs> oh, you little fake. <laughs> right. Either way, whether it's the original Phil or not, I'm not I'm not going to come down a conclusion. But Phil had an even bigger audience this year than usual listening to his proclamation because it was held in private because of the pandemic and live streaming was set up. Ah, so they don't normally live stream it. They don't normally live stream it. At one point, 15,000 people were on the live stream finding out what Phil had to say. Oh, wow. How many... How many people live-streamed Biden's inauguration? (laughs) I mean, I feel like more than 15,000. Probably. But Phil is a legend. I mean, you know, we need to know what he's got to say. To be honest, it was meant to snow today, and it didn't snow very much. So I don't think Phil is any less accurate than the weather forecasters around here. Yeah, true. Anyway, on to number two, because I feel like you are losing interest in my groundhog (laughs) story, or you're about to blow it wide open, and I don't want that to happen. So, number two. As you know, wombats produce poop shaped like a cube. But a recently published paper has revealed which part of a wombat's digestive system produces this cuboid shape. I'm going to make this multiple choice because there are lots of parts to a wombat. In what part of the wombat does the poop become cuboid? A, the first 22% of the intestine. 
B, oh, wow. the last 17% of the intestine, or C, the anus. Well, I was just going to happily answer the intestine before you made it multiple choice. <laughs> so know. I've covered two of those. I, I'm fairly sure it is the intestine because... I think people had always said, why are you looking at me like that? (laughs) My facial, this is my poker face. It's not poker at all. (laughs) Your face is telling me that it's the anus. (laughs) I'm really glad that was a phrase you've used. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, I I need to be specific, A or B. Is it okay? Is it the first part of the intestines or the latter part of the intestines? The latter part of the intestines. Okay, so we're going with B, the last 17% of the intestines. Yes. You would be correct. Woohoo! Now, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that this is an article I found because it was retweeted by Jack Ashby, who's the <laughs> assistant director of the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge, because if there's any good science about Australian mammals, Jack will be all over it. Yeah. Incidentally, Jack is also the next guest on my other podcast, Us and STEM out next week just saying just saying anyway back to this there are probably lots of listeners who are just surprised by the subject of this question the fact that wombats have cuboid poop but they do as we know and if you don't believe us you should probably google it you should definitely google it they come out looking like little brown dice it's pretty freaky yeah they sometimes they even have spots on (laughs) that's a lie different number on every side (laughs) you probably don't want to play board games with them but anyway the question is how do they do it And this is the question that Yang et al. set out to answer. Now, they use dissections of roadkill wombats. They combine this with mathematical modelling to work out what part of the wombat creates that distinctive cube. Firstly, could it be the anus itself? Well, as the authors say in the paper, look out, there's a great quote coming. If wombats were to make cubes similar to the way we make noodles, then we would expect a square anal sphincter. (laughs) Really put me off noodles, to be completely honest. So they had a CT scan of a live wombat anus and found that the sphincter was not square. It was a regular circle. So that's not the culprit. By dissecting the intestines from the roadkill wombats, they found that the poop is only cuboid in the last 17% of the intestines. I thought you were going to say they've got got a cuboid intestine. No, (laughs) no. But what is the culprit? It's coming up. So the first part of the intestines, it's just kind of like the stuff's all just mushy in there. Last 17%, you've got those little cubes. Now, they also found that regions of the intestine vary greatly in terms of how stiff and stretchy the tissue is. So as the food moves through the system, these areas will push on it with different forces. So then, aimed with this hypothesis, the scientists ran some computer models to see whether the forces produced by different thicknesses of intestinal tissue could indeed shape a cuboid poop through the contractions that happen during digestion. And they found, yes, they can. Now, these cubes are only found in the last 17% of the intestines. Can you think why? Because it takes a while to pat them into shape? Ooh, kind of. So it's because the liquid is removed from the faeces in this part of the tract. Uh, And this allows the faeces to keep that cuboid shape they're kind of being packed into in the rest of the intestines. And then the intestinal contractions are just encouraging it more and more into that shape. So there you go. You know more about wombat poop than you probably ever thought you needed to know. Yeah. But the big question is, why do they do it? There are some different theories. One of them is that the poo is quite important for things like marking territory or attracting mates, you know, the smell of it. Yeah. And by making them in cubes, if they lay them, lay them, is that the right word for poop? Mm. I don't know with lay. Mm. If they lay them as a cube, 
they're much less likely to fall off uneven objects. Yeah, okay. So they'll stay That put. makes sense. That's one theory. The other is that they just like to play board games with dice. <laughs> <laughs> let's, not, let's not go there. Number three. At the end of January, an article was published reporting the discovery of a new species of chameleon from Madagascar. What was particularly special about this species? It was teeny tiny. It was. It was absolutely teeny tiny. The male of the species is the smallest amniote ever discovered. Wow. Yeah. So amniotes are the clade of vertebrates that contain reptiles and mammals. Do you know how short he was? So I'm going to guess that it's, it's got to have beaten, in, in terms of size down, another chameleon, which is also from Madagascar, that we've known about from for a while, that mm. was really small. Mm. Which was like, I don't know, shorter than your finger? Mm. So couple of centimetres. From his snout to the end of his tail, the male specimen was 21.6 millimetres long. So that's his whole length. And as they say, it's about the size of a blueberry. So the one wow. that... Wow. <laughs> yeah. So the one that you're talking about is almost certainly one of the ones that's very related to this. It's within a genus of other chameleons, which are incredibly small. So okay. the genus is Brookesia, and this one is called Brookesia nana. What would you term that if you were to write it in shorthand? Banana? Banana. <laughs> <laughs> it looks a little bit like a banana. Oh. It's just kind of, the way it's sitting on someone, it's kind of curved and slightly yellowish. <laughs> so this is banana. So I was, I was actually wondering whether it was it was coming from the same root as nano. Yes, no, I'm sure it is. I'm, sh- I'm sure it is. Uh. I'm not sure if they meant for it to sound like banana or well, not. Well, you never know. I mean, they, they could well have done. I mean, people do this kind of thing. I don't know whether they meant to, but it does look a little bit like a banana either way. There's this photo of him sitting on top of a thumb that has been going around a lot. And he's looking like really sceptical and also really tiny. Oh. <laughs> like a really angry banana. <laughs> anyway, so this discovery was reported in a paper by Glau et al., which mainly focuses on the evolution of miniature body size and, crucially, the constraints that particular body parts are under when a species evolves to become tinier. What could I be referring to then? Well, this is about to take a weird turn. What do you think I'm going for? I think it's his hemipenis. <laughs> I believe the correct turn is hemipen, actually. Okay, okay. So there is reason behind this weird discussion. Like in many species of arthropods, it can be really hard to tell from looking at a tiny chameleon whether it is indeed really a new species. Now that's where the genitals come in. Often it's the genitals that are most different between species. So if their junk is different, they're different. But chameleons don't have what you'd expect in the way of genitals. They do indeed have what is known as a hemipene, aka paired penises. Now, one of the authors of the study, Mark Schertz, wrote a really great Twitter thread about the discovery in general and also how they check the genitals for differences. One of the things he brought up is the fact that this chameleon may be tiny, or literally the tiniest ever, but it's pretty well endowed if it does say so itself. In fact, in their study, they measured and compared the hemipene size of 52 species of Malagasy chameleon and found that the smallest chameleons tend to have the largest hemipenes relative to their body size. Mm. But why? Why does a tiny chameleon need a big hemipene? Because there's some kind of constraint that means there's a minimal limiting size for a penis to be 
functional. Yeah, what is that constraint? It can't be the size of the sperm. No, it's the ladies. Ah. Yeah. Males of this species and closely related species are significantly smaller than their respective females. So the male specimen for this species was 21.6 millimetres from snout to end of tail, whereas the female was 28.9. So we've got a few millimetres difference there. And they mate by riding around on the female's back. So while evolution has continued to make the chameleon smaller, they're limited to how small their penises can get before they actually can't reach to off. mate. Well, they just can't get it round. Oh, yeah, okay. It's all logistics. Mm. It's like hedgehogs having to sort of have one long enough so they don't have to kind of spike themselves on the female's back while they're trying to mate, so they have to Ooh. be able to sort of stand to the side and just slide it in underneath her. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. This is the thing, when you're at school... And biology is all so dry. You know, it's all like cells. Sorry, cell people. But it's all... (laughs) (laughs) So true. (laughs) It's all very sterile. And then you go into something like zoology... And it's just it's just weird penises, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, that's... it's all penises and poo. That's, <laughs> that's... <laughs> As we've shown. Anyway, moving quickly on to number four. A new pigment has gone up for sale so that it can be used commercially. What colour is it? Blue. It is. It's a shade of blue called Yinmin Blue. Now, this might not sound like a big deal. I mean, new colours are being developed all the time, right? I kind of thought you get a new blue by mixing two existing blue paints and that creates a new blue. So I went the other way on this because I actually thought, how do you get a new colour? Surely we have colours. How do you make a, like, how do you discover a new colour? Surely, you know, colours are a spectrum and we know what exists. I thought we just mixed the colours we already had in differing amounts to make new colours. But it's not true. It's Mm. a big deal. And I guess you can mix two things together and get a different colour. But that's only in terms of, you know, your paint palette. When we're talking on the pigment level, it's a lot more complicated. And in this case, it's a really big deal. In 2009, a new blue pigment was accidentally discovered by a team of researchers led by chemist Professor Mas Subramanian. And it was the first new blue pigment discovered in 200 years. That's crazy. I know. So I'm talking about this now because it was only at the end of January that the pigment actually became available to buy for commercial use. That is, you know, it can be made into paints that the public can use. And it took so long because it had to go through rigorous testing to check that, well, I guess it's not toxic, you know? Yeah. So now it is available to buy, but it's pricey. Can you guess what one company is selling a 35 gram tube for? Oh. Can you guess um, in dollars for me? Because yep, it's an American that, company. That's the, that's the currency I automatically think. It's in. an American company. $1,000? No, 179 Okay. for 35 grams. Apparently, that's... it's really popular though. Artists couldn't wait for this to become available because it's such a beautiful blue and comes out really vivid. But an added excitement, it's also popular amongst building engineers because it reflects most infrared radiation really well. So it keeps buildings cool. Oh. So obviously That's going to ha- be an expensive building to paint though. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. So obviously this has some really cool engineering applications. Do you get the hype from a public interest point of view? Um, maybe. I did see a picture of it and it is pretty vibrant. Mm. So it like it's an attractive colour to have discovered. I guess it I guess if you're an artist and that's what you work with, then it's it's like being given a new toy to play with. Yeah, I mean we can't really judge seeing as, you know, if a new statistics package comes out, you get excited about that. Yeah, I mean yeah, it's it, it's something you need to play around with. Nerd. <laughs> anyway, number five. 
A study published last week tracked European free-tailed bats with GPS trackers. How high above ground level did the trackers record the bats flying? Uh, 1,600 feet. Oh, strangely, for a scientist, you went into Imperial then, but if you'd been metric, you would have been correct. Oh. 1,600 metres. And oh, okay. they were even recorded, very rarely, but they were recorded, flying at 135 kilometres per hour. Wow. I know. What? Beady boys. So during the day, the sun warms the earth and this creates thermal upwellings of air, which birds exploit to keep them flying with minimal energy. Day flying animals also have the benefit of being able to actually see the landscape so that they can identify objects like hillsides and buildings that they can also use to provide them with uplift. However, you don't get thermal updrafts at night and it's dark. So unless you've got really great night vision, you're going to struggle with those tricks if you're a night flyer. Until now, animals flying at night hadn't been recorded using any of those tactics. But Omara et al's study in current biology has changed that. Now, they fixed tiny GPS trackers to European free-tailed bats in Portugal and tracked their speed and height. They found that mostly the bats do fly level to the shape of the terrain below, but sometimes they suddenly shoot upwards at high speeds and then plummet down again. The researchers literally described it being like, you know, roller coaster flight. Yeah. So the shooting down is understandable, right? Gravity. Yeah. And bats have stretchy wings, so they're not designed to soar at those heights. But how are they shooting up so fast in the first place? So they're not using thermals? Because they can't can't use them. Well, I was just thinking, could there be... I don't know, is there any way that you could get some kind of remnant thermal that was left over? Were they doing it kind of in the early evening when the ground was still warm? Or Yeah, so the thermals is not what's doing it. So I'm, sh- I'm sure you do get some sort of remnant of thermals. But, you know, thermals being literally where the ground gets heated and that makes the air rise, that's not what's happening here. Okay. But what the researchers found was that they instead seem to be exploiting orographic lift, which is where air rises because it hits a geological object like a hill or mountain. Ah, which is not the same thing. Okay. So by positioning themselves in these updrafts, they can soar high using less energy. Mm. Now, this is really clever in itself, but it raises the additional question of how they know where the changes in terrain that would cause these updrafts are actually located. Because their echolocation only works at a distance of up to 50 metres in front of them, and everything's dark around them, so their eyesight won't be particularly helpful. Mm. That's weird. So... They think they're doing it deliberately, though. Yeah. It, so they're saying that it's, you know, it's significantly correlated with these changes in terrain. Yeah, but if it's the changes in terrain that provide the uplift and they're not spending any time up there, are they just effectively getting blown up the side of a mountain? Well, they don't think so. They th- Basically, okay. they say that more research is needed to answer exactly what's going on. Yeah. But it seems that bats at least seem to understand the effect of these updrafts. And they have some ability to actually remember where to find them. Mm, Clever that's bats. That's really cool. Yeah. See, bats get a bad name, but they're amazing. I love bats. Yeah, they're fascinating creatures. They're really, really cool. And with the pandemic, they get blamed for a lot at the moment. But it's not their fault. It's not their fault. So there we go. Clever bats. So at the end of that round, I think I'm going to give you your highest score yet. Is that right? Four out of five. Oh, I don't know. Is that my highest score yet? I think I- it's... Definitely I, your joint highest. You've never got five. Okay. I honestly do not keep count. So. <laughs> I do. I take this very seriously indeed. Well, you can collect your crown afterwards. You can reign supreme until fortnight's time when presumably you will plummet back down to earth like a bat. 
Journal Club. Right, so I'm excited. What have you got for me this week in Journal Club? Well, my paper is truly shocking. Truly shocking. I truly feel like there's a pun there. How much do you know about electric eels? Well, I know enough to know that that was meant to be a pun. Absolutely. So the electric eel, Electrophorus electricus, was first described over 250 years ago and is a pretty fascinating species. Found in the murky waters of the Amazon basin, electric eels have a special organ in their tail which they can use to produce strong bursts of electricity, up to 650 volts. (gasps) What? That's huge. Can you put that into context for me? Yeah, so most countries in the world have 220 to 240 volts coming out of the sockets in residential homes. In America and in South America, it tends to be more like 120. But in, in Europe and the rest of the world, it's it's around 220 to 240. And as we all learn at school, that's pretty dangerous to touch. That's, yeah. you know, that don't, can kill you if you get your fingers stuck in it. Yeah, there. don't put wet hands near that. So at 650 volts, electric eels are getting close to three times that amount. Just one eel. One eel. Can, which is mad. I, I mean, I knew that they produced electricity and I knew they could produce quite a lot. I didn't realise until I started reading this paper that they could produce as much as that. I have newfound respect. Yeah, amazing. It's actually going to get better. I'll I'm leave waiting. you hanging for a minute. I'm yeah. waiting. So, why do they do this? Well, these shocks are used to stun their prey as a hunting mechanism, and they also use it as a defence strategy if they feel threatened. Slightly bizarrely, their prey are smaller fish and invertebrates. So you wouldn't think that it needs that much to kind of knock them out. No. But I guess it's a defence strategy as well, and that might be why, why it's stronger. But the reason that they need to do this is because they don't have any teeth. So they can't wrestle with prey, which is able to move. So they essentially need the electricity to knock them out and then they can just kind of hoover up the stunned fish that is basically paralysed. Oh, Mm. crafty. Yeah. Going back to the strength thing, they've also been reported to knock down a horse crossing a stream six metres away. What? Yeah, apparently. This wasn't in the paper. This was in another bit of reading I was doing. So I'm not entirely sure whether that's true. (laughs) But it's... I mean, 650 volts is kind of believable that that could knock down a horse. That's true. And supposedly they've also killed humans as well. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. But they also... They don't just do the the big shocks. They also produce much weaker electrical discharges of around 10 volts, which they use for sensing their prey and for communication. So they can, it's one of the ways that they, they live in these murky waters and they can go around and they can kind of detect where their prey are by sending out these, these electrical pulses. A bit like the platypus that we were talking about exactly. a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. So electricity is pretty central to an electric eel's life. But they've also been really important in advancing human technology. Mm. So they inspired the design of the first ever electric battery. I thought you were going to say electric toothbrush. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe maybe in part. In a roundabout way. In a roundabout way. Okay, electric Uh, battery. The first electric battery to provide constant current. Because the electric organ in their tail is made up of thousands of electroplaques stacked together. And these electroplaques each produce quite a small voltage. But because they're stacked together in series, this adds up to produce an enormous voltage. So what is an electroplaque? It's kind of like a little plate. Essentially, they they stack them up, thousands next to each other. And this is exactly the same design as the cells in a dry battery. So so they're all kind of stacked up. And then they produce the electricity. And and the fact that they're all in series, one after the other, amplifies the effect. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah, And electric eels have also 
been integral to medical advances used to treat neurodegenerative diseases and inspired batteries that could be used to power medical implants. Mm. Presumably, they, the paper didn't go into this, but presumably that's because it gives them some way of being safe to have inside a body. Mm. Up until 2019, electric eels were thought to be a single species found across the Amazon basin. However, research by David de Santana and colleagues in 2019 found that there were actually at least three species. This was based on the results from 107 electric eel specimens, covering genetic analyses and physical differences between the specimens, and ecological differences between the environments in which the three species were found. In addition, they reported that one of the two new species that they described, Electrophorus volti, was larger and able to produce discharges of up to 860 volts. What? Yeah. Yeah. What? That's 30% stronger than the 650 volts previously recorded. That's more electric than any eel ever needs. Mad, right? These eels are a bit bigger, and so presumably they just have more of the electroplax in them, and, and so they can ramp it up even more. Seems excessive. So they are now the strongest living bioelectricity generator in the world. I mean, that kind of makes my tiniest chameleon a little bit pathetic but there we go <laughs> well it's one end of the spectrum to the other isn't it in, in its own way the evolution of both is incredible yeah the that these things come into existence but that is not my paper is it no <laughs> okay because i've actually taken a break from my own tradition by which i mean i've stuck to the convention of what this show is supposed to be and i've chosen something that is newly published no yeah the horror so a couple of weeks ago researchers from the same team this time led by Douglas Bastos, reported that the new larger species of electric eel hunts socially. Oh, weird. So what, they go in on prey together? Yeah. Group foraging is not particularly uncommon in the natural world, and it occurs in many families of mammals. So you get lions and meerkats and chimpanzees where the individuals are related to each other, and therefore they help each other to hunt, and they gain a benefit from that. But you also get it in groups of unrelated animals, in things like fish and birds. And group foraging is beneficial, essentially where it enables animals to become better at detecting or controlling or capturing their prey, to the point where these benefits outweigh the costs of the increased competition between the extra predators. Mm. So specifically, group hunting often enables hunters to take down larger prey, so like a pack of wolves attacking a reindeer, or to corral smaller prey, which would otherwise be able to escape. Think yeah. about like dolphins or sharks attacking large shoals of fish. So why are the electric eels doing it? Well, it was previously thought that electric eels hunted alone, normally at night, by using their low voltage discharges to detect sleeping prey before stunning it with their high voltage blasts. This hunting strategy is energetically costly. So what are the electric eels doing? Well, it was previously thought that electric eels hunted alone, normally at night, by using their low voltage discharges to detect their sleeping prey and then stunning it with their high-voltage blasts. I sense you're going to tell me that's not true. Well, no, I think they still do do that, but they also have a second strategy. So this hunting, by using these high-voltage electric blasts, is energetically costly, because essentially the discharge requires a lot of energy to produce. Yeah. But it's also very effective. And so it's hard to imagine how joining forces with other eels would be beneficial. There's not much that you can do to make the capture of the prey easier, because the hunt is already pretty efficient, but there's a high potential cost of another eel stealing the prey which you've just expended energy in stunning. Yeah. So it's somewhat surprising that Bastos and colleagues describe instances of over a hundred individual eels foraging together. What, wait, what? what? A group of a hundred? A group of a hundred eels on multiple occasions 
in different years. So it's not just kind of a one-off event. This is something that's happening regularly. That is one heck of a spicy bath. Yeah, can you imagine? (laughs) And they do it in shallow water as well. So it's, yeah, it's like super concentrated. So just like dolphins and sharks, the eels herd smaller fish into a prey ball and then drive them towards the shallower part of the river. Then small groups of eels launch joint strikes of electrical discharge, stunning loads of fish which jump out of the water and are then gobbled up by the eels. You know what this is like? Have you heard of, is a conservation monitoring technique called electrofishing? Yeah. Where usually, you know, a, a, a reserve manager or a warden goes out onto a lake in a little boat with an electric current and sticks it in the water and all the fish float to the top. Yeah. You count them and then I think they come back to life, don't they? Otherwise, you'd just literally sure. be killing everything in the lake. They must do. I think in that case, it's a very, very low voltage that literally just stuns them. It really does just, But yeah. this is like extreme electrofishing. Yeah. So the authors report that you get five to seven of these high voltage attacks per foraging trip, apparently by a different subset of eels each time. So you get different groups of eels going in, stunning them, and then everybody eats a load of fish. What? Super bizarre. So what's going on? Well, the authors suggest... That while a solitary attack strategy is very effective at night when the prey are resting, it may be less efficient at dawn and dusk when fish can more easily see the eels and move to avoid them. So the group foraging allows the eels to corral the fish more effectively, and the authors note that their higher voltage is probably also effective at stunning fish from greater distances, perhaps up to 30 centimetres away. Okay. So... So this is something which I didn't quite get from the paper, because it seems that the eels have to be relatively close to be sure of stunning the fish. And so I guess there's the benefit of having many of them stunning at the same time. Yeah, you can surround, right? Yeah, which is why I questioned a little bit the thing of them stunning a horse from six metres away. <laughs> unless unless the horse literally walked through a puddle full of eels. And, Maybe. And actually it wasn't one eel, it was sort of All the eels. hundreds of them. It was, a hun- it, was a, it was a foraging party of a hundred eels. Trying to take down a horse. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. And what's great about this paper is that they've included videos of the group foraging events in their supplementary material online. So you can have a search and watch this amazing behaviour for yourself. And essentially they go through and they highlight you know, whether the eels are beginning to sort of corral the, the fish, because it, it is actually really murky water, it's quite hard to see. You can see the eels moving and they sort of point out where the fish are. And then all of a sudden you get like just this flash of all the fish jumping out of the water and that's when the the eels have zapped them. That's so freaky. Yeah. It's like you're setting up a conservationist version of snakes on a plane. <laughs> horror movie version of electrofishing. E- eels in a lake. Eels in a, yeah. eels in a lake, the sequel to Snakes on a Plane. Now, interestingly, the authors note that you might expect animals foraging as a group to communicate with one another. And we know that electric eels do use their low voltage discharges to do this. But they were unable to record data on discharge activity in this study, which leaves an open avenue for future research into whether and how the eels communicate with each other during these hunts, whether they use this communication to recruit other eels to the hunt, or whether the low-voltage discharges could even be used in part for herding the prey. Mm. They also don't know for sure whether it is the same or different individuals that produce the high-voltage strikes, potentially benefiting other eels who freeload off their efforts. Oh, yeah. now that would make a lot of sense. Because that's always the sort of thing that you get going on in any kind of group group living strategy. You've always got the cheats who are going to try and gain some benefits. So I also saw that in response to a question on Twitter, 
One of the authors said that they don't yet know how the eels avoid being affected by the shocks produced by other eels. That is a really good point. Yeah, that was something that sprung to my mind as well. Like, you're in the water with these eels, other eels, producing these enormous shocks. Yes. So it doesn't affect... But it would have to not affect them, right? Because they're creating it themselves. Yes, unless they can kind of direct it away from themselves. Or deal with up to a certain voltage, but then you've got 100. But, yeah. At once, that voltage is going to be enormous. That is a really great point. And that potentially must have engineering implications. Yeah, I guess so. And and also, I mean, it makes you wonder whether maybe there is a threshold and it's substantially higher than 860 volts. But does that limit the number of them within the group that it's safe to have discharge at the same time? Maybe. So they you get know, too excited, bring too many of their mates and yeah, just knock themselves out. Ten of them go for it at once and that's suddenly not... I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. These are all unanswered questions. And of course, we also have no idea whether this behaviour is restricted to just this one population where the authors have recorded it, or whether it's just this species, but all populations do it, or whether in fact all three species of electric eel engage in group foraging, and it's just not something that we've ever observed before. You know what, that's the perfect kind of science. As a researcher, you want to ask those questions where any of the answers would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the dream, right? Because it's like, there are no wrong answers, there are no boring answers, I'll get this stuff published, Yeah, whatever the answer. All of this is going to be cool. And I did very much get the impression from the end of this paper that this was sort of a paper to report the behaviour, and they've probably got quite a lot more in the pipeline for other discoveries. I mean, you know, there's clearly loads more for them to look at in this. And watch this space. There's a fair amount more to discover about the hunting strategies used by these eels. But one thing is for sure. This is science that is truly electrifying. Oh, man, no. No, no, no. <laughs> That's what I edit out. <laughs> so... I know that I'm pretty excited for your paper this week. Well, you should be, yes. This week I'm doing an unexpected crossover between science, conspiracy theories and paranormal incidents. What comes to mind when I say Dyatlov Pass incident? Well, so this is where we maybe have to admit to people what we spend our time listening to when we're not making podcasts ourselves. Serious science podcasts, obviously. S- serious, serious science podcasts um, called This Paranormal Life. Yeah, that's not science. No, but it is good. <laughs> if you haven't listened to This Paranormal Life, it's basically a comedy podcast where they delve into paranormal stories and kind of tear them apart, usually not very favourably. Yeah, so there's literally a whole This Paranormal Life episode about the Love Pass incident. And there's loads of podcasts about it, but this one's just a particularly good one where they lay out the whole thing with their usual excellent comic timing, which gives you the facts, but also kind of balances out how grisly it is. Yeah. And the reason I'm quite excited about this is, is normally on a lot of their podcasts, you can kind of see what the logical explanation is behind the you know they've got a paranormal tale a story of aliens or a story of some conspiracy theory and you kind of go well that's you know it's obviously rubbish and you can but you can see where the the what what's arising and what phenomena have caused people to think that it might be something suspicious going on whereas in this case actually the whole situation was so weird that you're kind of left wondering well what What i I don't think it's paranormal but i i don't 
have a logical scientific explanation yeah. of what's going on and i'm really hoping that you're going to provide it well in case listeners have no idea what we're talking about here we could basically fill a whole podcast with the Dyatlov pass incident as this paranormal life and other podcasts have and i recommend you probably listen to those if you want an in-depth study into it but just to give you a bit of background In 1959, a group of 10 experienced Russian mountaineers went on a cross-country skiing expedition in the Ural Mountains. One of them had to turn back because of ill health, so the remaining nine continued alone. This was back before mobile phones, so the leader of the expedition, Igor Dyatlov, said he would send a telegram to their sports club when they got back to the town at the end of the expedition. The telegram never came, so search expeditions were sent out to find out what had happened. This is where it gets grisly. Their tent was found ripped open from the inside, and over the next few months, all nine remaining hikers were found dead, dressed inappropriately for the weather, and some had horrifying injuries that seemed to come from blunt force, like broken skulls and ribs, and some were even missing eyes and one didn't have a tongue. Also, some radiation poisoning was apparently found on one of them. So the investigation to the deaths at the time returned an official cause of unknown natural force, which just sounds kind of suspicious in itself. And the theories around the incident range from alien attacks to them getting accidentally in the way of government weapons testing to them getting into a romantic dispute and killing each other to them being taken out by a yeti. But more recently, a new Russian investigation found the cause of death to be an avalanche. But many people have dismissed this, saying there were no obvious signs of avalanche debris, the slope they pitched their tent on was too shallow for an avalanche, that there was no snow in the area on the night of the incident that could have triggered an avalanche, and that their injuries were just too violent to have been caused by an avalanche. Now, this case has fascinated thousands of people, many of them conspiracy theorists, But also at the heart of this are the crew's family members, some of whom are no longer around, but, you know, who wanted answers about what happened to these young expeditioners. But, and here's the bit you're excited about, a paper published at the end of January may be able to provide those answers at long last. It's called Mechanisms of Slab Avalanche Release and Impact in the Dyatlov Pass Incident in 1959. And... As you may have guessed from the title, in the paper, the authors, Gorm and Puzrin, detail how they believe that it really was a type of avalanche that killed the hikers. Mm, so okay. probably not a yeti. Probably are. Oh. Soz. Ah, oh, damn it. I was hoping for a bit of Squatch action. Squatch watch. <laughs> Squatch watch. <laughs> We've been listening to too much of this to know that, in case anyone's not aware, Sasquatch is another word for yeti. Yeah. Also That's... Bigfoot. Yeah. And Squatch is just short for it. Because we are first name, nickname terms with the Squatch. Squatch Watch? The the Squatch Watch. (laughs) The Squatch Watch, apparently. (laughs) Anyway, back to the science. (laughs) Firstly, the point about the slope being too shallow. By looking at the actual topography of the area, these researchers found that the slope was actually steeper than first thought. But there was a snow layer that was on top, making it look shallow. So to the hikers and to those investigating it, it would have looked too shallow for an avalanche, but actually it wasn't. Then the point about there being no snowfall to trigger the avalanche, the researchers say that at the time, reports noted that there was an unstable buried snow layer running under the area where the tent was pitched. 
and they think that this could have been weakened when the team cut into the snow to pitch their tent. If this weakening was combined with strong winds, which is pretty likely, then it could have caused the underlying snow slab to slip hours after they've pitched their tent and career into them. No extra snowfall needed. Now this slab would have been fast and heavy, but not particularly big, so it wouldn't have left much of a trace. New fresh snow would have fallen on it and pretty much hidden it. Hence why there were no signs of an avalanche. Then we come to the question of why they had such violent injuries, when usually avalanches just cause asphyxiation. There's a National Geographic article by Robin George Andrews about this paper. It's really good throughout. But this section of the article in particular is super helpful for getting your head around why the researchers did what they did. I'd really recommend people read it. It's just a good article. So the researchers wanted to run computer simulation models to look at what effect a snow slab crashing down the mountain would have on a human body. Once those figures from the simulations had produced force estimates, they needed to get an idea of the impacts that those forces might exert on a human body. So they used data from the car industry in the 70s. Oh, yeah. clever. These experiments in the 70s were meant to simulate car crashes. And basically, they did that by taking cadavers and hitting them with lots of different weights at different speeds. Mm. Yeah, it gets pretty grim. Anyway, this would show how much damage, you know, different types of car crash would do. And because the car industry research was partly aimed at looking at the effect of seatbelts, some of the cadavers were strapped to rigid supports before they were hit. Now, this all sounds like I'm just being grim and detailed for no good reason, but this is really important because the Dyatlov group hikers were sleeping with their bedding placed on top of their skis. Oh. So they were essentially on rigid supports, and that meant that the car industry data was really applicable. By combining the data from the simulation models with the crash test dummy data, the researchers could see that the force of the sliding snow slab could indeed cause blunt violent trauma, like broken ribs and skulls, if the hikers had been lying on their skis. Weird. Yeah. And it's thought that the missing eyes and tongue could have been the work of a hungry animal just coming across the group when they'd already met their end. So... That just leaves a couple more questions. Why had they ripped their way out of the tent? Yeah, I was wondering about that, because that's not going to be done by the snow. No, it's not. The researchers found that whilst these injuries would be very dramatic, they weren't likely to have killed them instantly. Oh, no. So the team may well have been hit, badly injured, and then panicked and fled. But... Why weren't they wearing appropriate clothing? Because they were asleep? No, because they have to... These are very experienced hikers, so they should be sleeping in enough clothes to keep them warm. Okay. I don't know then. Well, sometimes when people get hypothermia, they actually start to feel really hot and they try and take their clothes ah. off. So that's potentially what happened when they fled from the tent. But... Why did one of them have radiation on them? Oh, these are so many questions. <laughs> I keep forgetting elements of this mystery. I don't know. Also a dull explanation. Apparently camping lanterns in those days contained a small amount of radioactive substance. Huh. So are you convinced? Yes. Are I mean, you? Have we solved it? And by we, I mean these researchers. <laughs> I mean, this is a much more plausible explanation that actually ticks all of the boxes that I can remember and doesn't require something paranormal or conspiracy theorist. What about so, the aliens, though? Well, I mean, maybe it was an alien attack. 
But no, I mean, that's that sounds pretty convincing. Yeah. I mean, conspiracy theories like this are exciting, right? Because, I mean, I'm generally very much against conspiracy theories, but when they're like this, it's just, it's so multi-layered. Yeah. It is actually quite fascinating. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if yetis were real? Yeah. But, I, but this is why science is really cool, because you can come across these things where you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And using all of the all of the information and all of the technology that you've got at the time, they couldn't solve it. Mm. And then, you know, years later, people have kind of come up with different ideas and different explanations. And eventually you get a theory that matches all of the data you've got presented. And then you can kind of, you know, you, you can have confidence that, ah, this might actually be the answer. Yeah. And and essentially that's what science has done throughout human history. We've We've gone through and moved from the stage of people sort of explaining strange phenomena with made-up stories to kind of being... I don't know what you're saying about the aliens, but I'm very offended. But don't don't we want to wonder whether maybe it was aliens? Does that not keep the fun alive? And by fun, I mean it shouldn't be fun. It's a really horrific story. I don't mean in this context, but I mean, you know, in general, when we have these kind of unsolved mysteries, is there not like a part of you that likes not knowing because... It could be something really exciting, or are you just like, nope, explain it to me with science. Well, yeah, but I, I think I think part of the intrigue is the fact that there are these unexplained stories, and you kind of go, well, you know, one day it will be explained. Maybe mm. it won't be in our lifetimes, but but at, at some point. And you know, I mean, aliens are not completely out of the question. I mean, they're probably not going to be you know little green men on Mars, but there could well be life on other planets. Yeah, and one day we may well discover that. There you go. But for now. Probably not aliens. Here comes science again to ruin everyone's fun. Yeah. Now, if you're out there and you still think it was aliens, all I'm saying is you better produce as many equations as these researchers did and just as many diagrams. Otherwise, I think I'm going to side with these guys. Animal Etymologies. So this week, I actually asked you what animal's name you wanted to know the etymology of. And what did you say? I said the peacock butterfly. Yes. Aglace Io. Exactly. Now, this isn't one that I knew, so I've done a little bit of research. And it turns out, good choice. Mm. So as usual, we come back to ancient Greece. Aglice comes either from the Greek agleos, meaning shining and radiant, or from the Greek mythical being Aglea, whose name is based on the same word, Aglice. Aglea was one of the trio of goddesses known as the Graces, and she was the goddess of beauty, splendour and glory. Pretty good CV she's got there. Yeah. So it's fairly easy to see why this genus of butterflies has got that name. I don't think it's unfair to describe them as shining and radiant or, you know, embodying beauty, splendour and glory. I mean, that would be a pretty weird way to say it these days, but there we go. Now we come to the species name, Io. That's I-O, literally how it sounds. And yet again, we're heading into ancient Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, Io was a priestess of Hera, the queen of the gods and the wife of Zeus. <coughs> also his sister. Anyway, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> Zeus fell in love with Io and, in inverted commas, took her as his wife. As you can imagine, not as wholesome as it sounds. Mm -hmm. When Hera found out, she marched over to Zeus and Io. So Zeus did what any good extramarital affair man would do and he turned his girlfriend into a cow to hide her right but Hera wasn't that dumb she's smart cookie as Hera like obviously your husband is going to hide his mistress as a cow so she asked for the cow as a present 
Now, Zeus said yes, because it would be super suspicious if he didn't. Then Hera tied Io, as a cow, to a tree and left her faithful servant Argus to keep watch over her to make sure that Zeus didn't come along for any cow-based good times. The thing about Argus is that he was a giant with a hundred eyes, so there really was no way of distracting him. So Zeus got Hermes... I realise I'm telling this like it's a gossip. I'm like, so then, next... So, I'm really intrigued because I still haven't got how we get, how how on earth are we getting back we're to the peacock going butterfly. To vaguely get back to the butterfly anyway. So you will not guess what happened next. Zeus got Hermes to lull Argus, the giant with a hundred eyes, yeah. to sleep with pan pipes and stories and kill him. Bit of an overreaction, but there we go. Such were the Greek gods. Then because. Obviously, four wrongs make a right. Hera ordered a gadfly to continuously sting Io, still a cow, so that she had to wander the earth in pain. Now, there's eventually a happy-ish ending for Io. After wandering for a while, Zeus turned her back into a human. All good so far. And she gave birth to two of his demigod kids. Not ideal, considering everything else that had happened. It's not entirely clear why the peacock butterfly is called Io. All I can think is that the peacock butterfly has very prominent eye spots on its wings, and Io was guarded by Argus with the hundred eyes, and in one Latin retelling of the myth by the poet Ovid, it is said that Hera commemorated Argus after his murder by placing his eyes on the peacock's tail so that they would forever be preserved. Uh... So there's a link there, but it's not incredibly clear. Yeah. I suppose it could also just be that Io was meant to be incredibly beautiful. I mean, the king of the gods himself was interested. So maybe it's just alluding to what a beautiful butterfly the peacock butterfly is. Who knows? But at least we've all had vaguely troubling, slightly scarring Greek story time. Yeah. I mean, well, it was a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Those crazy Greeks. (laughs) Yes. So I hope that that satisfied your curiosity. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll think twice before I answer your question next time. Isolation Recommendations Right, from ancient Greece to the modern day, what have you got, Andrew, for your isolation recommendation this week? This week, I'm going to recommend taking part in an art challenge being run by a friend and colleague of ours, Charles Emmergore. Yes. So Charles is a PhD student studying pangolins in Nigeria, but he's also a passionate pangolin conservationist. He runs the Pangolino Project, which aims to engage and inspire people in pangolin conservation through the power of art. Throughout February, Pangolino are running a month-long pangolin art challenge, with each day having a different pangolin-related theme. So the first eight days were dedicated to each of the eight species of pangolins, and each subsequent day takes inspiration from either pangolin behaviour, such as pangolin eating ants, or rolled-up pangolin, pangolin anatomy, like tracks or scales, or some artistic creative licence, like rainbow pangolin, or perhaps my favourite, pangolin superhero. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. That's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) So, the challenge is basically to produce a new piece of pangolin art every day for a month and share it on social media to generate awareness and discussion about the love of and support for pangolin conservation. As we're already partway through the month, there are already some amazing pieces of artwork up online. So if you want to check it out, search for pangolino underscore org on Twitter or Instagram, or the hashtag Pangolino Art Challenge. It's so good. I love this. The Pangolino Initiative itself, which he set up, often uses art 
as a way to sort of promote pangolins. And I like this. It's quite structured. It's good to sort of, if you're like thinking about maybe doing it, it's a good way of like giving you a little shove on to go ahead and try it out. Yeah. And I think it's perfect for this time of year as well. You know, it's it's winter. We've still got quite long evenings. We're in lockdown. What better to do than sit there and draw pangolins? What's your recommendation? Well, this week, my recommendation requires absolutely no effort on your part at all. You just need a laptop, Netflix and somewhere comfy to sit. Now, it's no secret on this podcast that I blimmin' love Sir David Attenborough. I mean... Don't we all? I mean, a couple of shows ago, I think I did a whole question, which was essentially, what's Sir David getting up to these days? (laughs) So... If anything, it's surprising that I haven't brought this recommendation up already. I recommend that you all watch A Life on Our Planet. It's a documentary where David Attenborough basically talks through his life in the context of the changing planets. So whilst he mentions the work he's done and all the amazing places he's been, he also points out how at each point in his life, the climate was changing, carbon levels were increasing and species were decreasing. It is a sobering watch. I mean, the graphics are stunning. And obviously, Sir David, absolutely repping it, brings it alive with his classic brand of gentle storytelling. But, I mean, you watched it too, right? At the same time, you're hit with these facts about the changing planet that are just downright scary. Yeah, it's quite shocking to realise how much has changed in a single human lifetime. Like, I think it's, it's very easy for us to think about you know, the world as it is now and to think, well, yeah, okay, there was a bit more wildlife around 20, 30, 40 years ago. But actually the numbers of, you know, the way the human population has exploded, the way that the carbon in the atmosphere has has gone crazy in that time, and the loss of wild natural habitat in, in those 90 years is, I don't know, something about seeing those numbers on the screen puts it into perspective, even for me as someone who kind of works on this stuff. Mm, it's um, very stark. I mean, if you're already an eco-freak, it's just a really interesting watch. But it's also the perfect thing to show someone who just doesn't quite seem to be getting it into their heads that climate change is real and that we actually need to act now. Anyway, all this sounds very apocalyptic and depressing. And you might be wondering why in the midst of a lockdown, I'm recommending something that sounds so bleak. But all I will say is that it also carries a message of hope. But you do need to watch all the way through to get to that. I don't think it leaves you sad. I think it just leaves you with like a sense that the way we're treating the planet is unjust, but also that we have the power to change things. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think you have to watch it to the end. If you stop halfway through, it will leave you feeling pretty bleak. But by the end of it, I think, yeah, there's there's definitely a message of hope there and a belief that we can do something about it. Also, before we go, I'm just going to end on a good news update. So even if that left you feeling a bit bleak, this won't. It's an update to a story we previously mentioned on the podcast. So a few weeks ago, you might remember that we chatted about how the Mary Anning Rock Society was fundraising for a statue of paleontologist Mary Anning in Lyme Regis. Oh, yeah. Remember that one? Yeah. Well, at the end of last week, they hit their target. Woohoo! Yeah. So they say that any further funds will be used for an educational programme of learning materials and fossil walks for children from underserved backgrounds. But for the time being, they have their statue funds, so Mary Anning will be getting some of that appreciation she deserves. That is good news. Well, that's all we've got time for today, but you can still get in touch with us throughout the next fortnight by following us on Twitter, at Lockdown Science, on Instagram, at Lockdown Science Podcast, or by emailing us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Send us any fun science you found, tell us about a paper you've got coming out, 
or just say hi. Also, if you're enjoying the show, we would really love it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We've got a few really lovely reviews on there already and every rating and review helps others to find the podcast. And let's be honest, just makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So as always, thanks for listening and see you in two weeks time for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. FM.